every parent, when they have children, they think of their children as human beings, right? Because that's what we are. We're human beings. Just imagine if somebody labeled your black child charcoal being. Charcoal being is what they assign to my son as his password. And that in and of itself sounds very offensive, questionable, and just confusing as to why a school would assign such a password to a black student. It got even more questionable and just downright fully offensive when he told me that his Hispanic friend, who looks typically Hispanic, got the password brown local. Brown local. Like the local person who is brown. I think that is inappropriate, offensive, and racist. I said I was going to organize my thoughts, but I did not. My mind is all over the place. I am so deeply hurt and incredibly upset. Today is September 12th, 2022. My son Noah is 15 years old. He's been living with me since April. That means the school year, last school year, was almost over when he moved in with me. Things were a little chaotic. We had to kind of scramble to make sure he got through ninth grade and didn't have to repeat ninth grade. So I was really just kind of playing catch up and kind of reaching out to his teachers and making sure he passed his classes. He still had to do summer school and that actually went pretty well. So he's in 10th grade and this year I figured we were going to start fresh and make sure that He started with A's and hopefully didn't get any less than a B, so I went to the parent-teacher conference night, met all of his teachers, and yesterday, which was Sunday, September 11th, I'm like, okay, let's log in to your school accounts and check your grades, check your assignments, and make sure that we stay on top of everything. So I need to explain that he goes to a school that is, uh vocational technical school, so they spend one week on academics and one week on their chosen shop. So his chosen shop is masonry, and he's really into masonry. He definitely wants to do it as his career, so he's really focusing hard on that, but I'm not letting him let go of his academics. I think it's very important to have a strong academic foundation so that you can do whatever you want to do. If you want to be a mason, that's great. Maybe you can open a masonry company rather than just working for other people. Anyway, so yesterday I asked him for the login information for his online school accounts and this login information was assigned to the students by the school. This was not chosen by the students. That is significant. I'm a little torn between wanting to protect my son's privacy and wanting to out these horrible people who are doing malicious, racist things in the school. And I think wanting to out them is winning over. My son goes to Montachusett Regional Vocational Technical School. The school serves more than just one town. They serve multiple towns. The school is located in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. Fitchburg, Massachusetts is in central Massachusetts. We are about an hour from Boston out here, so this is not the Boston area. The culture and politics in this area are not at all like the Boston area, and that's not to say that Boston is 
wonderful in this area is not. No, it's just very different. So I would say the Boston area is typically liberal, progressive, and I'm a product of that. So my views tend to lean that way. I am, I've already said, pro-abortion. I believe in equality for all people and that whole thing. I believe in integration of the schools and all of that. And out here, it seems like they were a lot more resistant to that for a lot longer. So when the Boston area was changing over and making sure that we had like a busing program for inner city kids to go out to the suburbs for school, I'm not sure how that sort of thing was handled out here because I grew up in Boston. So in 1973, there was a town in this area. It's still here. The town is called Ashby, Massachusetts, but in 1973, they decided to have a vote on whether or not to let black people live in the town, and I just think that's kind of crazy. Obviously, this was before I was born, but it was after the Civil Rights Movement. After the Civil Rights Movement, when it was pretty much decided that we were going to get rid of these rules and laws that said that certain people couldn't live in certain areas, we know the whole redlining thing, and we had sundown towns where black people were allowed to go into those towns to work, but after sundown, they had to be out of there or they would be targeted for abuse by the police and by other local vigilantes. I'm going to get back to that because I do want to share an article that kind of speaks to what took place at that time. It's pretty short, but the reason that I'm recording this is because on Sunday, yesterday, September 11th, when I decided to sit down with my son and take a look at his grades and his school assignments and all of that, he let me know what his login information was and I was immediately disturbed by it. The username was kind of what you would expect. It was his first initial last name with some numbers and the password though, this is where they really upset me. Every parent, when they have children, they think of their children as human beings, right? Because that's what we are. We're human beings. Just imagine if somebody labeled your black child charcoal being. Charcoal being is what they assigned to my son as his password. And that in and of itself sounds very offensive, questionable, and just confusing as to why a school would assign such a password to a black student. It got even more questionable and just downright fully offensive when he told me that his Hispanic friend, who looks typically Hispanic, got the password brown local. Brown local. Like the local person who is brown. I think that is inappropriate, offensive, and racist. And now it is up to me and the mother of the child who was given the password brown local to address this situation. I made several phone calls today to the school. I left a voicemail for somebody named Donald Kitzmiller. I left a voicemail for someone named Tammy LaFellum. I also called the school board and I spoke with someone named Rena Mello, who did get back to me. I also left a message for Julie 
Maranock, who I believe is a superintendent or assistant superintendent. So I left three voicemails for people at the school. I'm not sure of everyone's titles, but I know the last person was the assistant to the superintendent. Rena Mello sent me an email back letting me know that I can file a complaint with the state for discrimination. Let's pull up the email here. The United States Department of Education Office of Civil Rights enforces several federal civil rights laws that prohibit discrimination in programs or activities that receive federal financial assistance from the Department of Education. So I am going to be filing a complaint with them, but I'm also going to be following up with Donald Kitzmiller, Tammy LaFallum, and Julie Maranock, as well as Thomas R. Brown is the superintendent director. I will be calling that person, and I am going to contact Diana Carlson, who is the principal. Now, when I initially called the school and I asked just a general question about who would handle login information for the students to access their grades, etc., that's how I was connected with Donald Kitzmiller. So at this moment, that's the person I'm holding responsible for assigning my child a password charcoal being that is so racist and offensive and assigning the password to his Hispanic friend, Brown Local. That is just so racist and offensive. I'm so deeply hurt. I am having trouble even finding the words for what I want to express. I am definitely going to follow up on this. So here's the short article about Ashby, Massachusetts. This was written by WGBH, which is our local PBS station, and it was published July 2nd, 2020. It's called Revisiting and Reckoning with a Massachusetts Town's 1973 Vote Against Racial Inclusion. The idea seemed like a no-brainer to Philip Zwirling. In 1973, he was a young Unitarian minister who was fairly new to the small Middlesex County town of Ashby, a community of just over 2,200 people a little south of the New Hampshire border. The idea was conceived following a Martin Luther King Day speech about racial injustice given by John Howard, a local NAACP leader that year. Zwirling had invited Howard to his church to speak and afterwards gathered with some parishioners in the basement. What could we do that might have some lasting effect that might engage the community to do something positive around these issues? That's what Zwirling said they asked each other. They resolved to put forth a resolution at the upcoming annual town meeting to adopt an official statement of racial inclusivity. Quote, The town of Ashby, Massachusetts welcomes black people and people of color to our town because we believe in a diverse and harmonious town, end quote. And that's all it really said, Zwirling remembered, paraphrasing the 1973 resolution, but the progressive New York-born Zwirling was already a controversial figure in town. He was an outspoken critic of the war in Vietnam, and he'd come to be seen by some in Ashby as an outsider, a passer-through, uninterested in the town's moors, needlessly stirring the pot, and what he thought was an innocuous resolution proved to be anything but. I have to admit to a certain level of stupidity about it, you know. I just didn't think it was a big deal, he said. All this, what must have been under the surface, bubbled up and it got pretty contentious pretty quickly. According to the Lowell Sun, the resolution initially included the language, quote, we welcome to our town as neighbors, people of color, and members of other minority groups, end quote. But that was later amended to say more simply that residents would, quote, plan and work 
for a multiracial community, end quote. Some locals at the time told the press that the resolution was, quote, loaded. One longtime resident told the Lowell Sun in 2018 that the vote became as much a referendum on Zwirling himself as it was about the substance of the statement. Zwirling admitted that much was true. He would leave the town the following year, but he also said that his reputation wasn't the only factor. We would call them good people, he said of the Ashby residents. They were hardworking people. They were family people, but they were fearful people. Whatever the complexities, they were not captured in the brief news item that ran following the vote in, among other publications, the New York Times. It said simply, yesterday's annual town meeting voted 148 to 79 against inviting members of minority groups into town. Years later, that news item would catch the eye of sociologist James W. Lowen, author of the bestseller Lies My Teacher Told Me, when he began researching the phenomenon of American sundown towns. A sundown town is a town that, for decades, was, and a few still are, all white on purpose, Lowen said in an interview. The term sundown town derives from the most overt cases where signs were posted warning black people not to be in town when the sun went down. More often, Lowen said, official or semi-official policies, ranging from zoning ordinances to outright hostility or intimidation, drove non-whites out of these communities or made it clear that they were not welcome. Lowen said that just because a town was all white for decades doesn't mean it was a sundown town, and some sundown towns had small black populations, often domestic workers or local barbers. They were largely a northern phenomenon. And Lowen said thousands of towns went sundown between 1890 and 1940, a period during which the country's black population increased dramatically, yet entire swaths of the north, including in New England, became whiter. Between 1890 and 1940, race relations steadily deteriorated, Lowen said. The United States went more racist as 1890 moved to 1900, moved to 1920, and so on. Lowen's book, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism, was first published in 2006, but he continues to investigate and identify former sundown towns today with the help of volunteers. Ashby is just one of dozens of Massachusetts municipalities from Saugus to Sudbury to South Hadley that he's identified as having once possibly been sundown towns. A section on his website walks people through how they can do the research to confirm whether or not their town was. I've had students as young as middle school and people as old as 86 who have confirmed sundown towns, he said. For Lowen, this isn't just academic exercise. He said that the legacy of having gone sundown has a way of lingering even long after policies or populations have changed. As one stark example, he pointed to Ferguson, Missouri, a former sundown town that by the 20th century had a majority black population. So it is hardly a sundown town, but they still had a sundown town type police force, he said, still doing DWB, driving while black stuff, still overwhelmingly white, just like it was when it was a sundown town. Why are people of color centered in the city? It's because they were pushed out of the rural towns, said Jean Moule, an Oregon State University professor who has taught about sundown towns. Moule said she just recently found herself driving around her own nearly all-white county, reflecting on its sundown legacy. Here I am, a highly educated black American, and to be honest, it almost brought me to tears to think about how different my life would be if African Americans had not been pushed out, she said. I would have black neighbors near me instead of being isolated. Moule says that while we cannot change the past, we can 
can take responsibility for the future. You can't re-roll history and start over without recognizing how the racist nature in so many parts of our country has caused this to happen, she said. That's why Lowen prescribes three concrete steps that he said any town that was once a sundown town should undertake. They need to admit it. We did this. They need to apologize. We did this and it was wrong. And they need to say that we don't do it anymore. And that third step needs to have some teeth, he explained. That kind of thoughtful reckoning with what happened in 1973 is something resident Tiffany Call said she would welcome in Ashby. I think people like to think of Ashby as an idyllic New England farm town, and this is something that isn't so ideal, she said. Call served three years as town clerk in Ashby and now is the director of the public library. She was born in nearby Townsend, but says she moved to Ashby 11 years back. She fell in love. There are lots of fantastic people here in Ashby, she says. Wonderful, kind people that will drop anything if you give them a call and say you need help. Call is also a member of that same Unitarian church Philip Zwirling once led. Their congregation is small, but they've picked up where he left off, pushing in their own way for a more inclusive community. We have a Black Lives Matter banner hanging on our church. We also have a rainbow flag, and both of those have drawn attention. Not always positive, she said. Most of the people who live in Ashby today weren't even born when the vote took place. In fact, only about 10% would have been 18 or older in 1973. If that same vote were held today, we don't have a lot of families of color that live in town, and I think a lot of people are okay with that, Call said, so I'm just not sure that the vote would be all that different. I'd like to think that it would be. I'd like to think that we've changed and moved forward, but I'm not sure. That comes as no surprise to Philip Zwirling. From his perspective, we have as much work to do today as we did in 1973. Not just in Ashby, not just in Massachusetts, but all across America. This is a country that's been trying to deal with race for a very, very long time, Zwirling said. And usually white people have been making the wrong choices. And that brings us to where we are today. This article was written by Edgar B. Herwick III. Edgar B. Herwick III is the guy behind GBH's Curiosity Desk, where he answers your questions and examines some of the everyday mysteries hiding in plain sight. He's an award-winning reporter, host, and producer who's been with GBH since 2006. His work can be heard regularly on the radio station 89.7 and seen on gbhnews.org. Edgar holds degrees in history and communications from Villanova University in Philadelphia, and once he lost really big on an episode of the TV game show Jeopardy. The only real criticism that I have for the article is that I feel the people in the article were being a little too kind to the racist community of Ashby, Massachusetts. When I drive through Ashby, I see Confederate flags and I get the sense that the culture of racism is still alive and well there, just as it is in other surrounding towns and pretty much all over the U.S. I think the contrast that I'm trying to make in this episode when I compare the Boston area to central Massachusetts is that the racism in central Massachusetts is more overt and in the Boston area there seems to be a larger community of people who are trying to change things. Even though there are still some people who are very satisfied with the status quo, there seems to be this effort to try to make things a little more equal in the Boston area. The sense that I get in central Massachusetts is that there's this effort to do the exact opposite, to kind of take things back to how they used to be. You know, make America great again, that sort of bullshit. Yes, I'd like to know when was America great? Was it when the Native Americans were being slaughtered in 
been removed from their lands? Was it when Africans were being enslaved? Was it when slavery still persisted, but we called it something else like indentured servitude or imprisonment like today? I just don't know what those people are referring to when they say make America great again. Again, like when? That's my question. Thank you so much for taking some time to learn a little bit more about the racism, the racist history, and what people are currently dealing with in Massachusetts. I think it's important to recognize that even if these things don't affect you directly, there are people dealing with these things right now in every single state in the United States. This is an ongoing problem and it is very uncomfortable to have to deal with it, to face it head on and say, yes, we have an issue. We need to change this. People who don't want people that are different from them living in their communities are going to have to accept the fact that they cannot make that choice. They do not have the right to make that choice. You can't just decide that because someone looks different or because they speak a different language that they're not welcome to be your next door neighbor. I don't believe you have the right to do that. In America, we are constantly taught that democracy is a good thing. It's the ideal. It's the way every country should be run. But here's an unpopular opinion. I personally believe that democracy is dumb. It is one of the stupidest ideas I have ever heard of. And keep in mind that the person speaking to you right now is a member of a minority group. And democracy is based on the idea that majority rules. Why would I ever think democracy is a good idea? It is just plain stupid. If you have a majority of racist assholes who decide that they want to oppress minority groups, then those laws get passed because majority rules and that's how democracy works. Anyway, democracy is dumb. We need to keep fighting for true equality and true freedom. And I thank you very much for taking the time to learn more about my situation and for listening to Path of a Green Witch podcast. Thank you.